0: state, and the dust has settled, kind of. Bernie Sanders is out in front with young liberal voters leading him to victory. Andrew Yang, Michael Bennett, and Deval Patrick threw in the towel, and President Trump secures an historic win for himself. Those are the New Hampshire primary results, but there's more to these stories because, as we know, what happens in New Hampshire impacts the nation. It's our New Hampshire Insiders. Later in the show, in January, Under the Radar debuted brand new theme music to ring in the next decade. We sit down with the artists behind our new sound. But first, joining me in the studio, Arnie Arneson, former New Hampshire Democratic legislator and host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Hello, Arnie. May I say I'm glad it's over? <laughs> okay, you may say. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good to talk to you, Callie. <laughs> yeah. uh, joining her, Paul Steinhauser, campaign reporter for Fox News Politics and the Concord Monitor. Hello, Paul. Great to be back. Um, Great to have you both. And you two New Hampshire insiders, I'm ready to tackle all of the ins and outs of the New Hampshire primary. I'd like to start this way because I believe that the undecided voter really decided the election. Um, What do you say?
2: Oh, absolutely. And and I I will share my story. I went into the voting booth. I had my number two pencil and I was in the voting booth, Callie, for almost four minutes. Because I hadn't quite decided what I was going to do. (sighs) What does that tell you? I know all the candidates. I know their issues. I know their strengths. I know their weaknesses. I'm looking at Donald Trump, and I'm terrified at the tyrant in chief. I had seen him on Monday night, and yet I was undecided. So what does that tell you about the electorate? There were so many people like an Arnie Arneson who were deciding literally that day, that hour, as they were approaching a piece of paper. And what was so interesting from my perspective was that for a lot of folks, perhaps not for me, but for a lot of folks, it wasn't about lanes. You know, was it the progressive lane or the moderate lane? It really was looking at what they thought might have the package that they think needs to go against Donald Trump. I've never seen an election like this. But Donald Trump has really sort of rejiggered the, the, the political landscape. So people are walking in with a lot of different pressures on them as they make their decision.
3: Paul, do you agree? Yeah, I do, I do agree. I do agree. And, you know, we had been talking to you about this for a while. Late deciders were going to decide this election, and, and they did. Uh, and they gave a, uh, a victory to Bernie Sanders, but they also gave an impressive, very close second to Pete Buttigieg. And probably the biggest story was this uh, last minute surge. Voters saw Amy Klobuchar at the debate on Friday right. night, the Friday before the primary. Her poll numbers popped all weekend. She was able to monopolize on that momentum. A strong third place finish. That saves her campaign. She, she gets to move on and uh, continue on.
0: Let's hear from Amy Klobuchar. This is from her speech after the New Hampshire primaries.
4: My heart is full tonight. My heart is full tonight. While there are still ballots left to count, we
1: have beaten the odds every step of the way.
0: She definitely seems to have been the beneficiary. She's very excited about moving forward. But I wonder, is she kind of a placeholder for people who couldn't quite make up their minds because the whole thing was people couldn't quite make up their minds. Or do you think people have really eliminated some folks?
2: I'm not sure if she's accurate in saying we win every step of the way. She came in fifth in Iowa. I just (laughs) want to remind people. And remember, Iowa and Minnesota have our next door neighbors. So as they talk about Elizabeth Warren being a neighbor to New Hampshire, as Bernie Sanders being a neighbor to New Hampshire, they never mention that Amy Klobuchar, if anyone could have organized on the ground, if anyone could have gotten out the vote in the caucuses, It should have been Amy Klobuchar, but she came in a pathetic fifth. So she didn't win there. But what I will tell you about what Amy Klobuchar was able to do was able to show her political skills. And let me tell you exactly why, and I'll give you numbers, Callie. So I actually analyzed the last debate, which turned out to be very, very important because people were so undecided. And they were looking not only for content and policy but for political skills. Elizabeth Warren was given seven questions. Amy Klobuchar was given four Hmm. But Amy spent more time talking during that debate... Than Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren, despite the almost double the number of questions, kind of disappeared during the course of that debate, and Amy Klobuchar really excelled and showed that she could sort of command the stage. There are six initials that you need to focus on. The most important thing for Amy Klobuchar that explained what happened on Tuesday is A B C, as in the A B C News debate. The other three initials are F D R. She told this amazing story about when F D R had died and people were sort of following. The, the, the train that was carrying his casket and there was a man in the audience uh, who was watching the casket and he was crying. And a reporter went up to the man looking at the, you know, who was crying at the train and said to the man, why are you crying? Did you know FDR? And here was his answer. No, but he knew me. And then she used that refrain to say, I see you, I see you, I see you. And it built on that line from that FDR story. So you hear the FDR story. You realize how important the debates were. And because so many people were undecided, she gave them a reason to vote for her.
0: So, Paul, I think that uh, Arnie has laid out a, a very good argument about why Amy Klobuchar has the what? What are they calling it? Klobuchar's. That's what it is. But I also wonder, and I'm asking you deliberately because you're a man, if in that debate she came across as tough. Because one of the raps against women candidates always is, you know, are they tough enough? This particular campaign, she has to be tough enough to go up against people who believe uh, Donald Trump is particularly tough. So, how do, how do you read that?
3: Yeah, she did. She did. And this isn't the first time she's come out tough in debates. But here's the difference with this debate. It was smack right up against a primary or a contest. All the other debates, not that they weren't important, but they were so far away from when people were actually voting. Even the one in Iowa was a full two weeks before the caucuses. Uh, As for that FDR line, it struck me because I've covered a lot of her events both in Iowa and here in New Hampshire. She uses that line in every event But there's a lot of people who don't go to Amy Klobuchar events. So when you say that line in prime time in a debate that's much watched just before the primary, then it really rings true. Klobuchar, yes, she comes off as somebody who's a fighter. I think her victory was at the expense to a degree from Pete Buttigieg, but especially former vice president, Joe Biden. Absolutely. I think a lot of voters in that centrist, moderate lane that may have gone originally for Biden went for Klobuchar. Now he's almost on life support as he goes to South Carolina and Nevada and tries to resurrect his campaign.
2: And for people, especially a number of women I know, uh, they were actually debating between Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar for this reason. Hmm. They wanted a woman to continue to move forward into Super Tuesday. And they were so terrified that there would only be all these sort of older white men running against each other, that not only did she perform incredibly well and and for those who had not heard that story, I remember this was the first time for a lot of people, since they might have already been in different camps, to hear it. She needed to deliver a message that would resonate with voters, and she clearly, clearly did.
0: So when you say in different camps, you mean people who were formally supporting Cory Booker, let's say, or other people who dropped out, Julian Castro. They hadn't been listening to her. They were sort of in their other camps paying attention to those candidates, and now
2: they're trying out different folks. Well, I mean, look, Deval Patrick gave a great speech at the Hunter Club dinner, but he was not on the debate stage. So while you might have liked him, you knew he wasn't going anywhere. So you have to triage your effort. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. where are you going to go? These are really going to be my choices. What's going to move forward? What do I want to send out of New Hampshire? And what Amy Klobuchar did, not only with that speech, but what she gave you was sort of a sense of authenticity and the idea that she wouldn't forget you when she got elected. I think that's the most important thing. A lot of people were somewhat disillusioned with Barack Obama, with this hope and change. And what you saw was was that he sort of stabilized what happened on Wall Street. But then when you look at sort of the average folk, it didn't necessarily happen. They still saw a wide gap between rich and poor. You still saw that people really weren't made whole after the economic meltdown. But Wall Street was made whole. And what they were really looking for is someone who will remember them when they get elected. That's Bernie's strength. And to some extent, that's Amy Klobuchar's strength.
0: All right. So Bernie, we know, won. However, it's very close to Pete Buttigieg. So they were— they're close enough to have be two delegates apart now at this point. So some question, well, is that really a victory? How is it being read in New Hampshire?
3: It's all about expectations and politics, right? Bernie Sanders met expectations both in Iowa and pretty much in New Hampshire, but he didn't exceed them. That's why he's not the top story. A win is a win. So Bernie Sanders is happy. But you're right. It was it was a closer margin than I think a lot of people in the Bernie Sanders camp had hoped for. Same thing in Iowa as well, where it was basically a draw between him and Buttigieg, though Sanders continues to tout that he won the popular or the raw vote totals in the Iowa caucuses. But again, uh, you know, they're not exceeding expectations. But compared to a lot of the other candidates, the Sanders camp is very happy where they are right now.
2: So, you know, math matters here, and it depends on how you do the math. And one of the reasons why Bernie wanted to make sure those numbers were counted initially in Iowa was that he knew he would win them. So I'm going to give you something from the New Republic that just came out, I think it was yesterday or today. And uh, what they were looking at is they were listening to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, and The Daily basically suggested that, you know, Bernie only got 26 percent, and that meant 70 percent of the vote went to other people. And that's just not fair. And what someone <laughs> (laughs) did here was said, okay, let's look at the Warren-Sanders camp, because they come from the progressive wing of the party. They represent 52% of what showed up, and the Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Biden represented 35%. So I'm just telling you, it's how you want to cast the story as you move into the next two states, as you move into Super Tuesday. And, you know, what happened with the New York Times was they wanted one number to be out there. When you look at what the New Republic wanted, they wanted another number. I think in the end, we'll see what happens in Arizona, what happens in South Carolina, Carolina, because that will be very telling whether they definitely have to get out the vote. They have the connection with African-Americans in South Carolina and whether what's happening with unions and Bernie Sanders will hurt him when he tries to do that caucus in uh, Nevada.
3: I agree with Arnie to a degree, though. But Bernie Sanders has a ceiling and he's getting close to hitting it. But the flip side to that is this. Uh, Joe Biden's argument all along was I'm the most electable. Right. I'm the one that can go up with Donald Trump. Check out uh, Bernie Sanders' electability numbers in the latest polls now coming out this week. They're going up. What I am hearing from a lot of people is about how you
0: add up the wins. And in the end, the numbers seem to be for all the moderates, and that would be including a Michael Bloomberg write-in. So there's more moderates. You just gave me a 35 percent number, but in numbers – If you add up all the moderate candidates, they seem to be way ahead of what people would call the liberal wing of the party, and that would include Bernie. So which way are you all looking at that? Does that make
2: sense to you? I know you said it's how you look at the numbers, but... Let me mm-hmm. ask Paul a question. So, one of the people that really sort of performed incredibly well was Andrew Yang. I mean, he outperformed anything that anybody would sort of even ever have envisioned. I am curious, when you look at Andrew Yang and Tom Steyer, do you consider them the moderate wing of the party? I'm not quite sure that... I mean, Tom Steyer talks about Medicare for all. Tom Steyer talks about a Green New Deal. Tom Steyer talks about tax on the wealthy. Andrew Yang with his You know, basic income is not exactly a moderate suggestion. So, again, it's even how you frame these candidates. Some of them don't, I think, fit into a a nice little box. Mm -hmm. And that is part of the problem. I would suspect to be more in the progressive wing, but maybe I'm wrong.
3: No, Steyer is definitely a progressive. In my stories, I always introduce him as uh, environmental and progressive advocate, which he is. I mean, he took his wealth and he organized the progressive uh, side and got the vote out in the 2018 midterms. A yang as well is considered pretty progressive. And a universal basic income exactly. is not a moderate issue. Exactly. And Callie, let's let's just. Say one last thing about Andrew Yang. Let's give him credit. He was a, nobody had ever heard of him two years ago. when That's He jumped right. in the race. Exactly. He, he's got a bright future in politics. He just, you know, he didn't have enough to make it this time around. But we'll see Andrew Yang definitely again.
2: Well, let me just say one other thing because I had friends who were at a forum where all the different candidates talked about issues relating to choice. It was like run by Planned Parenthood, whatever. Andrew Yang was the most disappointing in that. And hmm. and again, he was never challenged on that because we we're all focusing on the universal basic income and the fact that he's so charming and he came out of nowhere. That some of the women's issues. that really I think are very important to a lot of people. At that forum, everybody was like, whoa, they were so shocked at some of his answers. So, again, that's part of the problem is is that you're the shiny new coin. Do we pay attention to all the other issues? This is an opportunity for candidates to be sort of their tires kicked on everything now. Andrew performed well. I'm not sure he would have been successful if he wanted to be president.
0: But to Paul's point, if he wants a future in this, he had toward the end started introducing his wife who started talking about some of those issues. And I think that that probably could have worked well for him had there been more of that and the two of them together and more Mm -hmm. discussion about it and blah, blah, blah. So we'll see. Uh, If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are our New Hampshire insiders, Arnie Arneson of WNHN and Paul Steinhauser of Fox News Politics and the Concord Monitor. We're discussing the results of the New Hampshire primary and what it means. All right. Now, Bernie Sanders, he won. We can argue about which part of the party has more folks in it. But he's calling for unification. So let's take a listen for Bernie calling for unification during his victory speech in New Hampshire.
4: What I can tell you with
3: absolute certainty, and I know I speak for every one of the Democratic candidates, is that no matter who wins, and we certainly hope it's going to be us, we are going to unite together... We are going to unite together and defeat the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country.
0: Now, I wanted to play that and have you take that in in the context of Michael Bloomberg, who's coming in from the left and the right and who has yet to make a debate stage, but I guess that's the next stop for him. But I think that in this whole thing, people have been trying to find the person that, of course, is going to beat President Trump. But I also think folks really want somebody that they can feel good about coalescing around, no matter who their candidate may have been. And up until a few days ago, maybe Michael Bloomberg was that person, because remember this Dixon-Notch vote happened after these stop-and-frisk stuff showed up again. So just getting your take on that. Where's Michael Bloomberg and the whole unity thing and
2: all of that? I think the candidate that the entire Democratic Party will sort of wrap their arms around and fight to the death is ABT, anyone but Trump. Mm. And that's really where the party is. There's no question. And I'm just going to sort of say something a little bit about Michael Bloomberg and the release of that tapes and some of the other things that have been coming out about Michael Bloomberg. On Thursday of this week, guess what? The black mayor of Houston, Texas, the fourth or fifth largest city in the United States just endorsed Michael Bloomberg. We know the African-American mayor of Washington, D.C., endorsed Michael Bloomberg. You saw the African-American congresswoman from Georgia endorsed Michael Bloomberg. And I think what is really the interesting calculation for the African-American community when it comes to Michael Bloomberg is that they see this incredible racist in chief, and I'll I'll use numbers because math is helpful. They see him as toxic and 100 when it comes to his level of racism. They may see Michael Bloomberg at around 62 when it comes to his level of racism with stop and frisk and some of the other things that are coming out that he has said about African-Americans. And when they're going to make a choice, they are much more afraid of Donald Trump and what another four years of Donald Trump will mean, not only for their community, but for the country as well, that they will tolerate a Bloomberg- Clearly, embrace a Bloomberg over a Donald Trump. And you can ask that of people in Houston, you can ask that of people in Washington, D.C., and now in Georgia, because some of their elected officials are embracing them, full throated support of Michael Bloomberg.
3: I, I think Arnie may be a little optimistic here. I agree with you on the African-American angle, Arnie, uh, and Gregory Meeks, another good yes. example just, just coming out. To I'm not Logan. saying
2: it's my perspective. No. I'm just saying it's theirs. But,
3: but here's the issue with Bernie Sanders supporters, the Bernie bros, as you're called. Now, if he doesn't win the nomination, I don't know how, if Bloomberg is the nominee, I wonder a lot about, about hmm. whether all these Sanders supporters are going to come over and back Bloomberg. This is going to be an issue for them. And I talked to a lot of them up here in New Hampshire, and some of them said, well, They're struggling with it. They're definitely struggling with it. They may have not learned their lesson from 2016. They may be sitting it out.
2: Every voter is struggling with this because, as I described it, so if he is able to acquire this uh, nomination, the way he acquired his nomination as a Republican for mayor in 2002 in uh, New York City, a very, very blue lefty place, let's remind everyone, so he's accomplished this before. It's not surprising that he might accomplish the Democratic nomination. The question then becomes, so what does this say about democracy? What does this say about the franchise? does this say about whether actually votes matter or people matter? Yes, he was able to sort of buy so much ad time and buy the fact that we're exhausted, Callie. That's the thing I think people don't quite appreciate. People are so afraid. They're so exhausted. They know they need to replace Trump. And what uh, Michael Bloomberg does is he says, not a problem. I'll come in and I'll take care of you. So our choice in 2020 in November might be between a destructive despot and a benevolent despot. (laughs) I mean, that's really (laughs) what it is. My question is, Does this put democracy, as we've come to think of it, on hiatus for four years? And will he leave after four years and just lay a foundation for a Democrat to actually, you know, win? Or will he do what he did in New York, not only run again, but maybe get rid of term limits like he did in New York City while he was mayor? So there are so many questions out there. But this is what Donald Trump has done to the political landscape. Everything is so unsettled. Nothing in the past is a predictor for the present. And that, I think, is where people are scratching their heads, trying to figure out what works, what sells and what can defeat Donald Trump. Well, I want to take a listen to Michael Bloomberg
0: responding to the remarks that he made in 2015. So here he is. He's responding to these. They've been heard before, but they've you know, resurfaced again, as I said, about his response to the policy that he instituted about stop and frisk in New York.
4: I don't think those words reflect what uh, how I led the most diverse city in the nation. And uh, I apologized for the uh, practice and the pain that it caused.
0: All right. Now, I'm one African-American. That's really not working for me. <laughs> so, you know, when did he apologize, <laughs>
2: Kelly? When did he apologize? I, Kelly? This I, is most important. Yes. I don't know when
0: he apologized. But 2020
2: that? was it i think i think either the end of 2019 or 2020 just in time for his you know run for president that seems like a bedside conversion to me and it seems one that is completely politically calculated there has been so much documentation about the failure of stop and frisk there was even documentation when he was the mayor of new york he chose to ignore it and he chose to embrace it so did donald trump i just want everyone to remember and now that he has said you know oh my god i was wrong i was wrong. What did it take for him to say that? Running for president. So,
0: Paul, so here's a thing that I didn't get from that. And I think he needs to get a speechwriter. Maybe he can go get Obama's speechwriter. Obama did the speech on race at a critical time in his campaign. And it was very heartfelt and uh, poignant and personal. And I think that's where Michael Bloomberg is going to have to get on this issue. Now, I think Arne may be right about other people who've come forward to support him to say, Listen, I just got to get rid of Trump and I'm just going to swallow hard and and try to ignore this other stuff. But I don't think that the remarks that he's made so far, even if politically motivated, seem to indicate he understands the harm inflicted by that policy.
3: Uh, Agreed. Agreed. And then the latest controversy is his comments from 2008. that were dug up by the Associated Press where he uh, blamed the loss of redlining. And we all know how devastating that was for the uh, that spurred on the economic crash of 2008. And that so another racially sensitive, uh, insensitive comment by him now creating lots of waves. So why is this so important? Because the base of the Democratic Party, the most important part of the Democratic Party, are minority voters from African-Americans to Latinos. Uh, And now that the campaign moves on from the two entirely, almost entirely white states to much more diverse electorates. This becomes a much, much bigger issue.
2: Michael is aware of this. I think he met with 20 African-American leaders within the faith community to talk about his run for president. He is trying to do the mea culpa thing. But what I think is really interesting is as more and more stuff comes out, is this part of your DNA? Uh, Michael? Or is this a mistake, Michael? Or how are you going to rehabilitate Michael? So maybe what he'll do, let me give you a suggestion. Here's what I think he might do as a result of this. He might take a page from Abraham Lincoln. And what did Abraham Lincoln do? He brought his enemies close. So now the question will be, if he decides and does get the nomination, who will be his VP pick? Who will be in his cabinet? Will he be able to say, look, this really shows the new Michael, what I was in the past. Forgive me. Forgive me. This is who I am. I am enlightened. I wish I could believe it. But that may be how he gets a better speechwriter, and maybe he gets to sort of physically show it with the people, not only that he surrounds himself with, but the choices that he makes not only for his VP, but for other members of his cabinet.
0: Yeah, but he has to get there first. So I um, I think he's got to do that the first part with an intentionality that doesn't seem to be exhibited at this point. And there can be some high-profile uh, endorsements. We can argue about the impact of endorsements. I would say of all the ones, and they are all very fine people, the one that gives me a little bit of pause to say, hmm, uh, is Lucy McBath from, from Georgia because she lost her son to a situation that's, you know, similar to a stop-and-frisk kind of uh, scenario. And if she's risen above to try to hear him, you know, I do think that that speaks volumes. But every Everybody doesn't know her. And I think he has to do a lot more. And by the way, what's wrong with politicians just saying this is just I said it. And at the time I meant it and I've evolved if they have. And here's how I've evolved. Give me some specifics. And here's what I would do. But this other trying to brush it away like, yeah, I said I apologize. I think that's lame. I'm just saying that's well, one you know, we, we, ha- we,
2: we haven't been in the conversations that he's been in with African-American leaders and what he did with Lucy McBath. You're absolutely right. That should give you pause, Callie, because she did. I mean, this is so personal for her and that for her to get beyond her grief and her yeah. anger, to be honest with you, given the fact that Michael Bloomberg represents in this conversation, it'll be right now. His consultants and his ads are talking for him. That's who's yeah. talking for him. What we finally are going to be able to get by Super Tuesday, and if he's in the debates, is we'll get to hear it in his own voice. And you and I get to decide whether he's being authentic or not.
0: Right. So President Trump had the rally there. He was thrilled to see the lineup around the block, and he was feeling pretty good. Here's here's a little bit of his speech in Manchester.
3: With your help on November 3rd, we are going to defeat the radical socialist Democrats. We are going to win— New Hampshire in a landslide.
0: I don't want to linger on this, but there were a whole lot of people in line to see President Trump in uh, Manchester. And I just want to point out that in the Concord Monitor, the person on the front page of that story is a black man, which is very interesting. So
3: there you have it. He's popular. This is part of the <laughs> Trump campaign's uh, efforts. Outreach, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but but and also more, more, even more importantly, this is their their hope to win or flip some key states like new hampshire remember donald trump only lost his state by less than three thousand votes to hillary clinton mm-hmm. uh they realize the trump campaign realizes they're gonna have a tough time holding on to all those uh rust belt states that they flipped four years ago such as a pennsylvania michigan and wisconsin so they're hoping to flip some other states from blue to red including new hampshire minnesota new mexico those are three for sure this trump campaign has a ton of money a ton of staff a ton of talent And they're testing it out. They made a concerted effort to pump up the volume to get the turnout big in New Hampshire on the Republican side. They succeeded. It's kind of like a test run, what they did in Iowa and now here in New Hampshire for the general election. And, that, you know, there, it was no mistake, no surprise, that the president was in New Hampshire the eve of the primary and was in Iowa for a similar rally just a couple nights before the caucuses. Callie, he's going to be in Nevada, in Las Vegas, a couple of nights ahead of the caucuses there. Exactly. The, this is mm. a plan they have to keep the president in the White House.
2: You have to remember, he's the performance artist-in-chief. He knows exactly how to yes, set the sir. stage here. And that's exactly what he did on the night before the primary in Manchester, Callie. You can even believe it this is where GBH was this is where ABC was this is where uh, he knew exactly where the media was where all the candidates would want to even have themselves and their surrogates going through and he made sure it was really hard to get a car there because they were <laughs> shutting down all the all the roads and highways into Manchester it was I mean it's very calculated and very brilliant but I, I also want to remind everyone he does have the support unlike any Republican we've ever seen in history of about 89 to 92 percent of the Republican base the fact that he got 129 thousand people showing up to vote for him and pull the lever shows that they really said to them, you need to show your stuff. You need to come out here. We need you. Uh, but also you've got about about 13 or 14,000 for Bill Wells on the Republican side and 234,904 Democrats voted. So yes, he did well, but the Republican Party is a shrinking party. The Republican mm-hmm. pa- Party is an old party. The Republican Party is a predominantly white party. And if you're looking where the growth is and where the future is, it is not there. And so Donald Trump needs to make sure that while there's still are people alive with a pulse that he gets those votes. What the Democrats have going for them is that there are so many new people that they can invite into the voting booth. Hmm.
0: All right. So I know no one wants to hear this in New Hampshire, but we got to talk about it, particularly after Iowa. The Iowa debacle really brought up the conversation, I think, in more serious terms than I've heard. You people can disagree with me um, about Uh, moving New Hampshire from the first primary or certainly making some changes in the lineup because, as was said by many and observed by others, listen, you know, you had the first two that aren't very diverse anyway, and then when you have a big mess, (laughs) as as happened in Iowa, you really, things are in chaos uh, in terms of people being able to, to look to see what direction really is the party going in.
3: Every four years, New Hampshire and Iowa have an extremely tough fight keeping their first-in-a-nation status as the first caucus state and the first uh, primary state. state That fight will be even harder when it gets underway in earnest next year. We've had in the past some presidential candidates criticize New Hampshire for uh, and Iowa for being— Way too white, uh, a lack of diversity, lack of real representation of, of the country as a whole. I remember Howard Dean back in 2004 making those comments. But this year it seemed even those cri- those criticisms were even louder. I think Julian Castro, who had been, has yes. been slamming New Hampshire uh, during the last month or two of his unsuccessful bid for the White House, and Michael Bloomberg as well. So you add on the debacle in Iowa which had nothing to do with New Hampshire in fact the primary here went extremely smoothly um and the turnout here was huge huge larger than in 08 or when, when ever before but they lump us together that fight is going to be very very hard coming up
2: I mean the question and, is and let me just ask this
3: question on. because I think
0: Iowa is is gone as that first uh stop to pay attention to so it's either going to be New Hampshire or or some other kind of lineup, because I just don't believe anybody's going to put that much energy, time, all of that into Iowa anymore.
2: I, I and I think New Hampshire is willing to throw Iowa under the bus may be honest with you, mm-hmm. um, they will they will they will I mean I heard that from the governor Sununu I mean I was with him in the, at a uplink the other day I I think the problem is is that when people think about the primary they think about us as almost a married couple Iowa New Hampshire Iowa New Hampshire Iowa New Hampshire the question is is this going to be a divorce can you mm-hmm. you know get rid of Iowa and not get rid of New Hampshire and I am going to remind everyone and this is really important as you New Hampshire did a phenomenal job we got people out. We had the highest turnout ever. We were engaged. We have the muscle when it comes to the primary muscle of making decisions. People truly were undecided, which is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It means Oh, I agree with you. So, But I also want to remind everyone, New Hampshire is the seventh wealthiest state in the nation. We are the second oldest state in the nation. We are the least church in the nation. We have one of the whitest states in the nation. We have the highest student debt in the nation. We support higher ed and public education with the least amount of state dollars. We had the highest opiate addiction problems, if not second or third, and we're only a population of 1.3 the size of a suburb. So you look at all those things, and they don't necessarily say, we should keep the primary. What I think does help to keep the primary is what showed up on Tuesday. I think that level of engagement and enthusiasm is mm. important and I, I'm going to remind everyone, you might want all 50 states to have a primary on the on the same day. You want may want it to be in Michigan or you may want it to be in Wisconsin or some other place, but there is value to small states because that means you don't have to be a Michael Bloomberg to be able to come in and start a campaign and you don't have to be in politics forever like Joe Biden with name recognition and therefore that's how you begin your campaign because people just make assumptions and you never get to sort of kick the tires. The beauty of New Hampshire is you actually can engage people. Yang is an example of that. Mayor Pete is an example of that. On paper, they should have been nowhere. Yang may never be a nominee, but he clearly established himself. And Mayor Pete... South Bend, where's that? A hundred thousand people? Oh my God, that's in my suburb. And you begin to realize that's the value of a small state. You don't want to lose that. The question is, are there other small states in the New Hampshire, and can they make the argument better because of diversity and age?
0: Hmm. Paul,
3: I agree? Oh, very much so. Listen, New Hampshire's best selling uh, point has always been that it levels the playing field for every mm-hmm. reason Arnie just said. Exactly. You get retail politics here like you never get anywhere else. Direct. Candidate to voter contact, uh, which is just uh, rare. So, yeah, there's going to be a change to the calendar. It's probably, you know, and Iowa may be going, but uh, hopefully New Hampshire keeps its place as the first primary state.
2: And, Callie, I was on the ABC News set the other day with Heidi Heitkamp, and I said, my house is the personification of the New Hampshire primary. We have the Al Gore bathroom, the Jimmy Carter (laughs) uh, bedroom. We have where Bill Clinton put his elbow. We have the Bernie Sanders dining room. I mean, you know, it's just you can't make it up. And I have a plaque over the door where Carter slept. So in a lot of ways, it shows the level of normalcy with these candidates when it comes to running for president before they get out of reach, before they stop really sort of knowing who people are. They really do eat in your house, sleep in your bedrooms, share your share your community's life. I think people need to be tested that way before they vault up to the top of the mountain and then we never get to touch them again. Well, we're
0: going to leave it there, and you two have been fabulous with the insight from New Hampshire. I'm going to check in with you a little bit later for some long-range observations as uh, the campaign continues in other places in the country. But thank you, my New Hampshire insiders. Our pleasure. Thank you. Arnie Arneson is a former New Hampshire Democratic legislator and host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Paul Steinhauser is a campaign reporter for Fox News Politics and the Concord Monitor. Coming up, love Under the Radar's new music, so do we, which is why we sat down with the artists behind the song, Leo P. and Brookline's own Grace Kelly. Together, they are We Are Too Sexy, Under the Radar's honorary favorite band. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call lanya that's Creole for something extra. If you're a regular listener, you already know that at the beginning of 2020, Under the Radar debuted brand new music. After almost 10 years of the same theme, we wanted to ring in the next decade with a fresh sound. We spent months researching and carefully curating playlists to pick the perfect song. We finally landed on the song Fish and Chips by Grace Kelly and Leo P., which we felt perfectly encapsulated the essence of UTR. Now we're huge fans of Grace and Leo, and we want all of you to get to know them as well. So without further ado... Joining me from the NPR studios in New York City, Grace Kelly, award-winning alto saxophonist, singer, and songwriter, originally from Brookline, Massachusetts, and a graduate of Boston's Berkeley College of Music. Grace has performed everywhere, from Barack Obama's inauguration in 2009 to the Hollywood Bowl. Hello, Grace.
5: Hi, Callie. It's such a pleasure. Big fan. <laughs> oh, thank
0: you. I'm glad to talk to you. And joining me, from, <laughs> joining me from WDET in Detroit, Leo Pellegrino, a.k.a. Leo P, baritone saxophonist. Originally from Pittsburgh, Leo is a graduate of the Manhattan School of Music. He is a member of the band Too Many Zoos, which has millions of YouTube views. And he's collaborated with Beyonce on her landmark video album, Lemonade. Hello, Leo.
1: Hey, happy Sunday night. thank you. you.
0: Together, Grace and Leo make up the collaborative band, We Are Too Sexy. So I'm delighted to talk to both of you. We've had such fabulous response to our new theme music, which the two of you created. I'm going to get to the creation of that uh, a bit later in the conversation, but first, a little bit about the two of you. So, Grace, you started performing professionally at the age of 12. My goodness. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> talk about that a little bit and tell me how you landed on the sax and why you fell in love with it.
5: Yeah, so my parents have always been playing such a beautiful diverse range of music. From I was actually a total Broadway nerd as as a little girl, singing, acting, uh, dancing and um listening to a lot of Broadway pop music, jazz, classical, but in the jazz vein, my parents played a lot of the saxophone of Stan Getz and a lot of Brazilian music. Girl from Ipanema was playing on repeat on Sunday morning brunches and that's he's the reason why I play saxophone just the sound of the sax to me much like the human voice and I've always found it extremely expressive and and I was singing along to his solos at the age of 8 years old and I just knew one day I wanted to play the sax the music career thing is not something that I ever thought would be a career it very much was something that just snowballed from from a young age from my music teacher Saying to me when I was 12 years old, what you're doing is, this is pretty cool, Grace. Let's uh, let's record you. To literally, you know, meeting some of my music mentors at workshops and them them hearing me, whether it was Wynton Marcellus hearing me at Roth's Steakhouse in New York City, and then inviting me to to perform with him at the at Obama's inauguration, things like this that really turned into an organic snowball into a, a, a musical career, which I'm very grateful and, and blessed to uh, have and be a part of the artist community.
0: I would say when I, I was reading this information, it reminded me of the story of Terry Lynn Carrington, whom I'm sure you know at Berkeley, who's a jazz uh, drummer and who started quite young as well and playing with with some of her idols as well and then, uh, of course, went on to make a great career and continues uh, to teach at Berkeley as well. So it, it really did remind me of that. I thought, wow, there's a lot of people starting very early. <laughs> I did piano lessons. It didn't work so well for me, but whatever. One of the things that I was interested in is that You've recorded 13 records and 900 concerts. You are all independent, self-released, and you made that choice because, why, you just didn't want to be bothered with having anybody else determining what you might put out or how you might create?
5: So I've been very blessed to be able to to create a career where I, I am able to move forward with all the artistic visions and ideas I have, and um, it's been an, a beautiful ride to be able to do it as an independent artist. And obviously, as as opportunities come in that align with with my vision forward, then that's something that I think about there, then ha- and have that conversation. But in my journey so far, being an independent artist, owning. My own music, being able to make the decisions and create the vision of what I'd like the, the music and the art to be, that's very important to me. And uh, it's been a great growth thing for me through it, which that process is something I also very much enjoy.
0: Okay. Um, let's listen to your playing the jazz standard Smile on your 2005 album, Dreaming.
5: Oh my God, Kelly, you're taking me back. (laughs) Oh, well, my God, I'm 12 years old. You are taking a, me back. I,
0: I love that, though. It's still beautiful. So <laughs> that's what you want. You want, it. You want it to hold
4: up. <laughs> oh, my God, that's great. That's wow. my guest, Grace
0: Kelly, playing the Jazz Standard Smile. She is uh, part of the collaborative band We Are Too Sexy. Um, both uh, Grace and Leo make up that band, and they created our new theme music called Fish and Chips. So over to you, Leo P., your co-collaborator in the creating of our theme music and you have a completely different uh, story in music of how you came up in music. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, basically, I grew up uh, playing the clarinet uh, because my dad plays the accordion. Uh, It's traditional in the Pellegrino family to, you know, play Italian polkas. Um, So I was, like, performing, you know, around Pittsburgh where I grew up uh, since I was, like, I don't know, 13, 12 or something with my dad. Uh, It was kind of a family band kind of situation. And then I heard John Coltrane, and I thought he was pretty cool. I mean, I basically just wanted to be a rock star, and I felt like guitar or like, singing or I don't know, all that other stuff was, like, too much of a stretch from clarinet. And I was like, oh, you can play saxophone if you play clarinet, like, pretty easily. So I don't know. The first sax player I heard was John Coltrane. That I was like, okay, he's cool. He inspired you. Yeah, he inspired me. Because mm-hmm. I always kind of thought of, like, you know, music as part of like me making my image better like it wasn't like it's like I love music but it's more like I want um you know just influence the whole building when you walk in it and just change the whole room the whole vibe so I was like I need to figure out a way a vessel to carry me to that so it was just kind of like saxophone seemed a lot cooler than clarinet so I was like all right I'll do that. How, yeah. How
0: old were you? Because we know Grace was twelve when she started, you know, working with music. How old were you when you first played the clarinet, and then when you switched over to saxophone?
1: I don't know. I don't. How old are third graders? I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> like, what I saw what no age? Help. What? I think that's eleven. <laughs> Is that eleven? Maybe ten. I don't know. Third grade. Okay. Because my mom had a clarinet and it was like brown. It was like really weird. And I was like, "You have a brown clarinet?" I was like, "Yeah, that's that's right. I have a brown clarinet." So. I was, like, good at that. You know, I was doing, like, um, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb, but, like, double time. And everyone was like, whoa. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so yeah. So then I started sax, and then, like, my mom bought my first tenor sax because because it was, like, junk Culture played tenor, so I was like, I'm going to be a tenor player. Bought my first tenor sax off eBay, and the dude that sold it to my mom was, like, and I wish I knew this guy's name. He was really excited about me like learning saxophone and jazz so he sent like a hundred cds oh my this goodness. is when people use wow. cds and it was just like john coltrane early late middle all this kind of stuff like it would you know be zoot sams early zoot sams you know so i just had like all these uh awesome just saxophone players to listen to and those are all the cds that i had then anyways the barry sax though what happened was uh the guy who played Barry sax uh, got expelled from the school for, like, having a knife or something. I don't know. So you ended um, up with the baritone
0: saxophone?
1: <laughs> so I ended, up, I ended up with the baritone because of that. And then it was, like, it just became a little addicting to me to get, like, the head rush of, like, the low notes. Because you kind of get, like, a high when you're, like, playing the low notes. And playing the Barry sax became addicting in, a, like, a way that, like, I didn't necessarily feel with the other instruments. Plus, I was, like, you know, really good for a Barry Sax player. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> like... So I you wasn't went really with that. good at anything yes. else. So. Yeah,
4: got it. Yeah, <laughs> okay.
0: Let me remind my uh, listeners that that you are Leo Pellegrino, aka Leo P, and you're a baritone saxophonist, as we're describing. You're my guest and part of the collaborative band We Are Too Sexy, and you and Grace Kelly uh, created Fish and Chips, our new theme music. Now, Leo P, I want to take you back uh, to playing in the subway in 2013. Here you are playing with your group, Too Many Zoos. <laughs> to play that because the the two of you have, uh, you know, some humble beginnings and now you've shot to the stratosphere doing other things that many, many more people have gotten to know you both uh, nationally and uh, globally. And I should tell people that uh, I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And my guests are saxophone players Grace Kelly and Leo P., who together make up the collaborative band We Are Too Saxy, And we're discussing their song, Fish and Chips. We will be discussing it in a moment, which is also Under the Radar's new theme music. But before we get there, I wanted to give people a sense of uh, some of the heights that you two have reached before you came to write our theme music uh, together. Uh, Here you are, Leo P., playing at the BBC Proms in 2017. Now, the Proms is a really uh, prestigious event. Uh, It's made up of a a number of groups playing. This is BBC means in London. Um, And you were a featured performer in 2017. And here's a clip. (laughs) I gotta say, Leo, the whole ensemble was fabulous too. The pink hair with the pink suit. Was pretty, it was pretty good. So
1: You know what I'm saying? It's like a vibe. It's like more than like a music thing. You know what I mean? It's it like, is.
0: If you wanted to achieve the pop star look, you achieved the pop star look. I was feeling it all the way, and it was so exciting to see the huge audience and that huge, I say, backup to you, backup band to you while you played. So that was really exciting. <laughs> all right, Grace Kelly, you've had some really good highs that we should know about. You got to New York playing in the Colbert House band, that's uh, Stephen Colbert, and you've done that. You've gone to jazz clubs, been part of the music scene. But in 2018, you won the John Lennon Songwriting Contest for a song called Feels Like Home. We want to hear a little bit of this. This is Grace Kelly, Feels Like Home, featuring Elliot Skinner.
4: You feel like home. Like sunshine you tell
0: me I'm so bright well, you feel like uh. Grace, you won twenty thousand dollars for that, but who knew you could sing? I did not until I saw this.
5: Wow. Yeah, you know, I actually my first connection to music was singing, and uh, a lot of people don't know it because. At the forefront of my jazz career, you know, the saxophone really took front seat, but my my first love has always been singing and songwriting and really, like, storytelling. I mean, as a little girl, I was dancing. I was writing my own skits. I was acting. You just, I would just be alone with the mirror. I didn't even need toys, and I'd kind of make this whole world up. Um, And so whether I'm singing or playing sax or performing, to me it's an extension of really storytelling and expression. So um, actually since my very first record when I was 12, I always sang and I had songs on every record. But it was an incredible honor and a delight to have this song, which is probably one of my most personal songs to date. I wrote it about my boyfriend and I wrote it in like 30 minutes. It was just really exciting to watch it. You get this accolade and a a lot of people started to find my songwriting and singer side and and found me online and they've been sharing the song to their loved one. People have got engaged to the song. I actually Mm -hmm. just performed it for someone's first dance at their wedding with Elliot. And it's been incredible to get messages and hear stories from people all around the world that have been finding it online and saying this is our love song this is me and my girlfriend this is me and my wife. This is me and my boyfriend you know and this thing which has always been such a huge part of my expression songwriting you know I've always just done it because I loved it and I felt like I needed to express with melody with lyrics it's just another extension of me but it's been very encouraging to now step into it even more and see the effect that it's had on audiences all over
0: Well, I thought the same thing when I heard it. I was like, wow, this is a great wedding song. So so kudos to you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, But I was also interested in that because you mentioned that people are finding it on the Internet. Both of you, both you and Leo P., really have used the Internet to great ability to reach other audiences, and it's, it's worked well. And in fact, Grace, that's how you found Leo on the Internet.
5: Yes. Oh, my gosh. I remember the first time this was years ago, seeing this viral video of this guy just killing it in the subway, dancing, playing. And, like, I don't repost that much stuff on social media unless I am just full-on blown away. And I just remember that moment of reposting being like, what? This is (laughs) insane. And that was, you know, the first time that I had seen Leo. And and the really magical thing is, like, literally years later— we found ourselves direct messaging on Instagram, had a lot of mutual friends, and, you know, have a lot of admiration for what he does, admiration and respect, and just, just so cool to watch him online doing his thing. That was what brought us together, finally, like six months after messaging back and forth. Uh, we found ourselves in a rehearsal room and jamming, but, yeah, that was my first intro to Leo, just being like, this guy's doing his thing. It's so authentic. This is so cool. I've never seen anyone dancing and playing the sax and making a style on the sax like him. And it really came full circle to finally meeting each other.
0: That is great. Now, Leo, you were inspired by the title of the song Fish and Chips because you were in England <laughs> eating fish and chips. Yes, uh, <laughs> in, Bra-
1: on, in Brighton Beach.
0: But you also are the person that laid out the framework for the song Fish and Chips. How do you begin that? I'm going to play a little bit in, uh, to just get people to hear some, some parts of it. But You know, we who are not musicians wonder, where do you start when you are inspired by something like fish and chips?
1: (laughs) Oh, um, sometimes I'm just messing around and it just comes out over, like, jamming because that is probably the purest way for me to write music. Sometimes, like, I try to write things about a moment and so those are the two ways I write music and I kind of did both for this one. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I was in, uh, like, I, I didn't eat any meat or fish for, like, 25 years and then i started eating meat and fish recently because like i don't know, I travel so much i'm trying to be part of different cultures and you know really experience everything and make the road easier and so um i ate fish and chips for the first time and i did it in brighton beach in england where there's a really amazing fish and chip there's a lot of fish, fish and chips places there but there's one particular that's like really amazing and i usually have a pretty strict rule about eating before shows because i get cramps and it makes the show so so hard if I'm, i have a full stomach. And I just couldn't stop myself from eating all these fish and chips because of how much I ended up liking fish and chips. So, like, the song to me is, like, about liking so much that something so much that you don't even care if it hurts you. Dude, that's so – I didn't like, even know that.
5: That's cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like, kind of, like – Because, like, it seems, like, <laughs> exactly. happy. But it's, like, a if you know, like, my writing style, what I normally write, it's, like, a – kind of a freakishly happy baseline. Yeah. You know, it's almost like a yeah. huh, like a clown smiling. Like that's happy, right? Um <laughs> but yeah, it was like, man, did I pay for it on that show with the fish and chips? Uh well <laughs> I love it, and we love it, obviously. And I want to play the
0: intro to Fish and Chips, which is also to our show. And this is the part to our listeners that is fully improvised. Back to your point about messing around and the two of you jamming together. So let's take a listen to this improvised first part of Fish and Chips. Well, we heard that and lost our minds. (laughs) We were in a meeting playing different cuts of things. um, And we got to that and we're all just dancing around in our chairs, uh, very unprofessionally like. And so we loved it. And um, (laughs) it really is good. Uh, Let me also just play a part of the melody of Fish and Chips. And this was composed uh, by you, Leo P. And then we'll talk about it again. is that the messing around and the jamming together obviously has paid off because you're now doing some other collaborations, and you have done some other collaborations. Any future collaborations planned?
5: Yeah, well, we actually are going to do a couple upcoming shows in Boston, Massachusetts at the Berklee Performance Center Mm. um, on March 1st. We Are Too Sexy is going to be special guests with the 8-Bit Big Band, which is an incredible 33-piece video game orchestra, playing the best of video game music, but with, like, awesome big band arrangements. And um, the other concerts on April 10th, where Leo is going to be my guest. I'm doing another night at the Berkeley Performance Center, Grace Kelly and Friends. Um, It's going to be my band and special guests. We're going to be doing a live recording. Super stoked to have him. And we're also currently working on an online course where we're going to be filming a bunch of hours of content, talking about our our stories within, you know, saxophone and tutorial stuff within the sax, but also as performers and material that we can pass on to our generation, the next generation, many sax would win everyone players and uh, roll that out hopefully in the springtime. We're working on pre-production for it now. And then, of course, other other music and and hopefully we get to do some shows in uh, some other shows, too, as We Are Too Sexy in 2020.
0: Well, I have to say that watching you two uh, playing our song, that's what we call it, our song. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Love it. Oh,
4: great.
0: <laughs> was, it's great. is just, I mean, it got so many eyeballs, and people are so excited, and I know you have your, Individual fan bases and together fan bases. And I was quite taken with the fact that the video that you did for our song, you only took two takes. It's very elaborate. Uh, kudos to both of you.
5: Thank you. Thanks. Leo, feel free to jump in yeah. here. But I'd say that when the two of us come together, we really just go at it in the spontaneous moment. It's usually just like one or two takes. For that session, we didn't rehearse. With the band, I mean, maybe we did a, w- one run-through, but usually it's the two of us in a room choreographing our stuff together, jamming out, finding stuff that works, and then uh, just going at it live.
0: <laughs> Leo, you get the last word.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the key for me on that one is just, it's like it's easy for me if it's my own thing. If I'm playing uh, something I wrote or just making it up on the spot or whatever, like I feel really comfortable.
0: Well... But the two of you, yin and yang, looks like it's a fabulous collaboration.
5: Yeah.
1: You agree? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I think our personalities complete each other. We do.
5: We have some serious yin and yang going on. Well, You complete me, bro. (laughs)
1: Hell
4: yeah. Well,
0: (laughs) we totally appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for allowing us to use our song and for allowing us to get to know you better and to bring your stories to our listeners. So, thank you for joining me,
5: Kelly. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. So glad you dig the song. Oh, totally. (laughs) Grace Kelly
0: is an award-winning alto saxophonist, singer, and songwriter, originally from Brookline, Massachusetts, and a graduate of Boston's Berklee College of Music. And Leo Pellegrino, known as Leo P., is a baritone saxophonist, originally from Pittsburgh. He's a graduate of the Manhattan School of Music and a member of the band Too Many Zoos. Together, Grace and Leo make up the collaboration We Are Too Sexy. Well, that's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Francesca Monahan and engineered by Dave Goodman. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxis, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.